25 to 69. When they found him on the other side of the lake, they asked him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, you are looking for me, not because you saw the signs I performed, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Then they asked him, what must we do? What, what must we do to do the works God requires? Jesus answered, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. So they asked him, what sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Sir, they said, always give us this bread. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry, and whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and still you do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never drive away. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of all those he has given to me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks for the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I shall raise them up at the last day. At this the Jews there began to grumble about him, because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, Is this not Jesus? The son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know, how can he now say, I came down from heaven? Stop grumbling amongst yourselves, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It's written in the prophets, they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard the father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the father except the one who is from God. God, only he has seen the Father. Very truly I tell you, the one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and may and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Very truly I tell you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of, the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up at the last day. For my flesh is real, flu real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me, and I in them. Just as the living Father 
sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died, but whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. On hearing it, many of his disciples said, This is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? Aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, Does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. And yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled them. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and no longer followed him. You do not want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I was uh, reading uh, in the New York Times, electronically, by accident, uh, a story... uh, a couple of weeks back that stuck in my mind uh, and you've probably come across the same facts uh, we know it's no news that when a pastor falls that that's news these days so when a celebrity pastor falls it's headline news and uh, there was a story uh, quite a few in the last few years uh, that the New York Times uh, covered of a megachurch pastor um, who was removed from office a little while ago. We don't want to go into uh, too much detail. It's not positive, and I'm not saying this for the sake of uh, rubbing his nose in it, etc. But I felt that the New York Times article was very fair. And when they looked at this, they went and did their research. They got into the church and they heard the stories and they tried to work on capturing the culture that had produced this phenomenon of this fallen pastor. This was a church where uh, frequently when that pastor preached, they would count the hits uh, on the internet and uh, oftentimes he would be scoring 150,000 hits on a Sunday. He had 700,000 Instagram followers hanging over every word. So you can imagine the immensity of the devastation when someone like that fails and falls. But what uh, disturbed me more was about the, the discovery of the inner nature of this organisation. That's my area. I study organisations. And I was fascinated by what is, could only be termed a narcissistic organisation that had for its leader the perfect narcissist. And he had the ability to attract celebrities. This church would give a, a, a preference in terms of VIP treatment to TV personalities, 
sports stars, what have you, right down the hierarchy until you were one of the servants, in which case you didn't quite matter. They ran through people, like we changed socks. But uh, really, when you listen to the story of this person and their lifestyle, there really was no particular difference between their lifestyle and that of your current pop idol, the, the, uh, the, the show that was put on every week. The liturgy was, in fact, a concert. And uh, the more I read of this, the more I was thinking, was Jesus at all involved in this? Has this got anything to do with the Jesus that we're getting a glimpse of in this book? What would he do here? This uh, church, if I can use that term, had developed a what I call a hierarchy of cool. And the coolest people were at the top. They were idealised. And those who were hoping to be cool came there that a bit of the cool would rub off. You know, and that's the trouble. When a church starts to play with narcissistic aspirations that reside within each of us, there should be no surprise when that slippery slope leads to a fall. Narcissism is a worldview that is destructive. And the more we as churches try to sell Jesus to consumers of cool, the less Jesus they'll get. So let's have a look at this story because here is a picture of a Jesus at the turning point in his ministry. Chapter 6 is where Jesus, he has had a, a rage following you know, up north, hometown country in the region he grew up in. He's gone to Jerusalem. He's done some miracles. We've only got a sample of them here. We heard about the healing at the pool a couple of weeks ago. And he's now offended himself uh, in front of the, disgraced himself in front of the, um, the powers that be and the important people down in Judea. And that's not going to end well. He's then gone back through Samaria where he has uh, had a warm response from those who should have rejected him. And now he's back home again. He's on his home turf. You'd think this is a chance for him to really galvanise a good following. Let's see what Jesus does as we look in this long, but we'll skate through fairly quickly. We, we see the situation here that the, the same people that were at that feeding miracle on the northwest, I can't remember, I can't work this out, on the side of the lake, <laughs> uh, and uh, remember Jesus uh, ends up taking his own steam across the lake in the middle of the night, and that he, he ends up the next day, all the disciples are at Capernaum or the side of the lake that Capernaum is on. And uh, the, the, the crowd that was following him the, the days earlier, they want more of this. They haven't had enough. And so they've gone back with their boats to where Jesus was. He wasn't there. They've then noticed that the disciples were heading off to Capernaum, across the lake at a north-easterly angle, westerly angle, and uh, they've followed him in their boats, and they've, they've got there, and now they've discovered Jesus is there. And you would have thought seeing all those boats pulling into the boat park and getting out of the marina or whatever it was, that, that Jesus would have said, great, that was a successful mission. Look at the pulling power that I've got here. 
And uh, boy, have I got some charisma if I can get people to walk home 10k, get in a boat, sail 20k, and come and hear another sermon from me. But Jesus instead, in verse 25 and 26, he cuts to the chase, he takes the initiative, and he says, um, before you uh, answer the question of how I got here, you know why you guys are really following me? It's for most base motives. You are just interested in a free meal. If some other miracle worker offered a barbie somewhere else, you'd be off after them. You know, you're, you're really just following me for base motives. And I've summarised their attitude, the assumptions that causes these people, I call them shallow disciples, to follow Jesus. We're going to see where this ends up and why. Three questions that they have in their minds which must be answered. And it's not just a question of how Jesus got here. The first question is, what's in it for me? They're into religion because of very gut-level things. Like here, just an appetite for a free meal. But what's in it for me? They're not motivated by who Jesus is, that he is the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. They just like a good feast. And it doesn't necessarily have to be food. Shallow disciples are ruled by base motives. Secondly, verses 26 to 28, Jesus moves on and uh, he says, don't work for food that's going to vanish. You're going to have a meal and you'll forget me. Don't move for that, but move for the food, work for the food that endures that the Son of Man will and Jesus is trying to emphasise, give you. He's emphasising this word gift. And on him the Father has placed his seal. And they rebound, okay, what are the works which God requires? Now, Jesus then answers, and it's badly translated in my version, but it's simply, he's, he's saying, this is the work of God that you might believe in the one he has sent. And this is his fundamental thesis. This is what is the very heart of the church. We're only true here because this is true of us. We wouldn't be sitting here this morning, but it's the work of God that we believe. That's what Jesus is saying. The reason anyone follows is because of a prior work of God. He's not saying, if you really want to make God happy, believe in me, it'll cheer him up. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, you only believe because of the work of God. It's God's subjective work. Work is not the interest here. It's the work of God that brings you here. So you see their attitude, though. The shallow disciple says, you know, tell us, rabbi, every rabbi has their formula for righteousness and holiness. What's your formula? What's your secret? What's in it for me? What's your secret is the second question they are. These sort of people want a shortcut to godliness. That makes them susceptible to charlatans. Because they want an easy fix. Fundamentally, they're lazy. They don't realise that discipleship is a lifetime quest. And it takes all you've got. You skin your knuckles being a disciple of Jesus. And then in 29 to 36, it just sort of accelerates. So they asked him, Okay then, if you want us to just believe in you, what sign are you going to do? Now, our pin-up boy is Moses. Now, I bet he was. These people weren't particularly religious. They weren't Pharisees. 
But our, our poster child of holiness is, is Moses. Now, that, there was a guy for you. He just didn't give one barbecue. He gave manna from heaven day after day after day. If you're going to get us to believe in you, you've got to trump that. That's what they're saying. That's, uh, that's going to cause us to believe. And uh, Jesus responds, look, you're wrong. It wasn't Moses that gave you the food in the heaven, in the, in the, the wilderness. It was my, my father in heaven. Moses was just the instrument. Uh, it was my father that gives true bread from heaven. And, and the sort of bread I'm talking about is, that was just a, a, an image, a picture, a type of this food. And the food I give comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they say, well, boy, now you're talking. <laughs> we want some of that bread. <laughs> hey, hey. Let's have it. And Jesus said, I'm the bread. I'm the one that comes down. I'm the gift. They're not talking about bread. You see, they're, they're, they're totally focused on their own immediate horizons. And that's why a lot of people come to church. I think they call them church. Because they are asking, what's in it for me? They want a quick solution. That what's your secret? And now they're saying, what's your evidence? I don't know how many times I've been in coffee shop work or mission work where some little tyke will come in and, and you'll put on a presentation. Someone will do a Christian song or give a testimony or something like that. And this little tyke will say to you, yeah, you guys believe in God, but if, if God is real, make him appear on my hand. <laughs> See, you can't. <laughs> Kidneys, uh, brains. You know. <laughs> you know, and it's, it's ridiculous. You know, the, the whole idea, their assumption is that seeing is believing. Now, what I find incredible about this whole little episode is that those three questions are an advertiser's bliss. If you can get people to ask, what's in it for me? And answer it. If you can give them a secret formula that no one else, even all medical science, has not been able to come up with yet, but we've got a, a new solution and we can give evidence. Here is a testimony of someone who, who got out oil stains using our soap powder. Uh, you know, you've got a market and that's how it works. And you see, I don't see a lot of difference between what some people call church and what others call advertising. They are there to try and sell Jesus. The assumption is that Jesus needs our help to be sold to reluctant consumers of religion. Now, if that's where we are, then you'll end up with more and more of these headline news stories. You've got to have your church, and especially your pastor, appearing larger than life. So people can invest their aspirations in his, usually his, charisma. But let's see how Jesus works the crowd. You know, at the heart of that style of church is one little assumption. Sin. These sorts of churches don't actually convert people. They reinforce sinfulness. They give people, as sinners, 
a way of leveraging God so they can feel better about their life. And Jesus was not into that. He says after this, verse 36, As I told you, you've seen me and still do not believe. You see, coming up with miraculous evidence does not make one disciple. They saw, they didn't believe. Intuitively, it sounds like good logic, doesn't it? If only we can have more power, more miracles, you get more belief. Didn't work here. Jesus then says, verse 37, all, and here are the, here is how God works in the world. So all I'm saying is, if we want to really be involved in God's work, we've got to look at these four things. There's actually eight here, but I'm only taking four this morning. Four ways that God works in the world. If we want to be on his page, if we want to be aligned with the way he's working, I presume we do, then there they are. He says firstly, verse 37, these are wonderful truths which will liberate you and save you a lot of needless anxiety. They certainly save a pastor a lot of anxiety. They take the spotlight off the pastor and they put it back on Christ. He says, verse 37, all whom the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I'll never drive away. Did you notice that? All whom the Father gives me Now, when did the Father give people to Jesus? It's interesting. We hear a lot about spiritual gifts, but verse 39, he says the same thing again. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those he has given me, but raise him up at the last day. Do you realise, as you sit here this morning, that you are a product of an eternal transaction that happened above the dome of the earth, beyond time, between the Father and the Son. And the Father loves the Son. And you know the sort of gift he puts a lot of work into his Christmas presents. And when he thinks about what would really thrill the Son, he says, um, oh, gee, you haven't got a Lauren. Oh, look, here's a Lauren. And the Son says, boy, yeah, I haven't got a Lauren. Thanks. He says, you know... There's a Tom. Have you ever got a Tom? Not yet. Oh, I've got one Tom, but he's a little short guy. But, you know, oh, here, here's a big Tom. <laughs> got one of those? Hey, yeah, thanks. And before time begins, the Father is gifting the Son with you. Isn't that an astonishing thing? You are part of a love transaction inside the Godhead. And that's how we should think of ourselves that should be how we think of God's eternal scheme which is now getting worked out in history see you later it's in history what was in eternity now has come back into our little snow dome world and here we are and secondly he says you notice so it's an eternal transaction a triune transaction and he says, and this is the will who, of him who sent me that I shall lose none of all those he has given me. Does that remind you of anything? Do you remember when he did the miracle? Remember these speeches flow out of the miracles. When he did the miracle, it was in two parts. He both multiplies the bread, feeds the 5,000, and then what did he do? He tells them to clean up 
Remember that? That none shall be lost. Here it is. When he did that miracle, it was about us. That we mere morsels might be gathered into his kingdom. And none will be lost. And he says that several times. He has this phrase, but none will be lost, verse 39, of all those he has given me, but I will raise them up at the last day. In fact, he says this in the space of three sentences. He says it again and again. I will raise him up on the third day. Uh, in verse 44 no one can come to me unless the father has drawn me and I will raise him up in the last day and you see what he's saying he's saying it's not I will call them and as luck will have it some of them will be risen he does he he's saying you know what is decided and then what is enacted the interim between salvation and resurrection is immaterial What will happen in your history the moment you are saved, Jesus can visualise your resurrection. Not potential resurrection, notice. I will raise him. Jesus says, I come to do the will of the Father. And this is the will of the Father that I lose how many? The minority? I lose none. Jesus' powerful work of salvation is that not only is it an eternal transaction, it's a secure transaction. So you should never wonder and live in worry that maybe you know, something might happen in your life down the track that could lead you away from Jesus. Paul says much the same thing. Read it in Romans 8. Peter says the same thing. So read it in 2 Peter 1. The whole idea is that Those whom he foreknew, he predestined, become conformed to the image of his son. Ephesians 1. And that's the nature of salvation. It's a secure transaction, a chain of cause and effect that cannot be broken. And then in 41, having spoken about raising them up in the last day and having spoken about coming down from heaven, the Jews go, hold on a minute. Oh, this is a local bloke, isn't it? We know his mum and dad. Oh, I do. I know where he grew up. I went to the same school. You know, and they're all over it. This is just human Jesus. They just are looking at the surface here. I mean, the signs should have told them they were dealing with more than a human Jesus. But no, they're li- living at a very shallow level again. And Jesus answers this. He rebuts this. Verse 43 says, Stop grumbling about yourself. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father draws them. There are two words in this text which are critical for understanding yourself and the role of the church and therefore the role of the pastor of the church. They're simple little words the words no one and the word everyone. That'll be for me. That's it. <laughs> but um, here, here it is in. Uh, Uh, in bold print Jesus says and this is quite offensive to some Christians but he says no one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws them and I'll raise them up at the last day as I said before no one can come now this is fundamentally the difference between Christianity 
biblical Christianity and historic Catholicism. Historic Catholicism was informed by Greek philosophy and the idea that we have a free will and that people are noble and that they will weigh up the pros and cons and with a bit of a shove from God called grace, they will make the right decision. But that's not the way Jesus says it. No one can come. It's impossible. We are liable, like Plato, to underestimate sin. We think well of man and little of God. But Jesus knows that sin is like the it's opposite to the heliotropic forces that force a flower to bend towards the light. Humans bend away from the light. We can't stomach the truth. You know, often I, I hear Christians talk about, I remember when I was a school teacher and I worked, from, worked for a couple of years at one of the worst schools in Melbourne and then I went to one of the brand new spanking shiny best schools in Melbourne in a nice suburb, from a dodgy suburb to a nice suburb. I can still remember as a young uh, teacher, people saying, well, you know, it'll be a lot easier to do the Lord's work now you're here. I can remember parent-teacher evenings where you in, in, in the, the karate school, you'd never see the parents, the very people you want to talk to about their little criminal in training. You just, uh, you know, you'd never get to talk to them. And then you'd get along parents that didn't need to come at the other school because all you'd say is, gee, I wish I had a whole class full of kids like your kid. Yeah, they're wonderful. And uh, yeah, well, good. Uh, don't worry, he'll be fine. And you know, it was a pointless conversation. But you know, in God's eyes, both are impossible. One is not harder. In fact, sometimes these good people are so autonomous they don't realise how sinful that autonomy is. They're so darn responsible they've taken responsibility for their own salvation out of God's hands. And that's the nature of sin. And then Jesus moves on, so we have an eternal transaction, it's a secure transaction, and it's an issue that you can't force because you don't want it anyway. People don't want to be saved. They don't think they need to be. And then Jesus says, um, in the middle of this, he says, uh, oh, that reminds me of a verse of my own. You had your verse, I've got my pet scripture. They shall be taught of God, verse 45. And here's the second key word. Everyone who's heard from the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one can, but everyone who hears comes. It's not that Jesus says everyone who hears has the potential to come. Uh -uh. Jesus says if you truly hear the speech of God, it's what the old divines called an effective calling. He saves people through his speech. There isn't an, op an option put out in front of sinners. Here, you could have it. It's an invitation to believe. No. It's their belief, but it's their belief because they've been worked on by God. And that, that we've got to understand this, that, that you can't miss it. It's an eternal transaction. It's in this history as a secure transaction. You can't force it, but you can't miss it. And that's the wonderful nature of what a church really is. And unfortunately, as Jesus is in flow here, 
as he comes through this passage, he, he just goes over the old ground again and says, I'm the living bread that comes down from heaven. Whoever eats of this bread, and I'm thinking he'd be pumping his own chest at this point, will live forever. And in fact, he adds this little fact here in verse 51, this bread is my flesh which I'll give for the life of the word. And as soon as he says that, boy, does that send the cat amongst the pigeons. Verse 52, then the Jews began to argue amongst themselves, a little bit like Nicodemus that Tom preached on the other night. A little bit about, you know, how can I be born again? They, they don't bother to understand this. They use crass literalism. They say, how can this man give his flesh to eat? I mean, that's stupid. That's revolting. <laughs> you know, there. <laughs> and they don't even bother with it. Uh, and so Jesus, now notice 53 to 59. I'm not going to work through it, but you just notice he goes straight for the jugular then. And 53 to 59, he doesn't resile. He said, oh, it doesn't say all of them. I hope I haven't offended anyone with that little quip about flesh. <laughs> you know, I don't know why it does it. You know, slip of the tongue, Freudian. No. He, he ramps up the volume. Very truly, I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you've got no life in you. He's talking about some organic connection with himself. But they're not interested in that. And he goes on, my flesh is real food, my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in them. Blah, da, 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 da. And he goes on, this is the bread that came down from heaven. Your fathers ate manna and they're all dead. But you eat my flesh, you live forever. But by now, in verse 60, on hearing this, many of his disciples said, this is rubbish. Who can accept this? God's man and they start to filter away and he can see and it's still at that point he sees his disciples and I don't know, it's more than the twelve and they're starting to mutter and you can pick the mutter going through the crowd he's not thick and he says does that offend you what if I what if I let you see the ascension would that convince you if I went back to where I came from that's what you want no wouldn't change a thing you couldn't be convinced. And then he says this profound thing. Verse 63, The Spirit gives life, the flesh profits nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they're full of spirit and life. This is how God works. This is the basis of what a church is. The Spirit takes the words of Jesus and that's all he needs to give eternal life. That is a fundamental. We wouldn't be here, we wouldn't love Jesus if we hadn't connected with him through this mundane thing of the spirit of life, that through the words of, the, of God. God's presence comes into the world today, like this point, through the mundane, unimpressive work of his word, his message. God of glory has decided that he will manifest himself, that he'll take hold of lives and transpose them into an eternal existence with himself just through people hearing his word. If that's how he works, why don't we put that up in lights? Why don't we major on that? The reason most churches have one of these or some variety of it 
is because that's how God works. That's how he works through you to bring other people to know him because his words are dynamite. They're full of spirit and life. And right at that point, uh, he notices that his disciples are trickling away and they're no longer following him and he looks around and he sees the twelve and he asks them this question. It doesn't quite come out in that text. He says, you don't want to follow them, do you? You want to go too? Go now. Isn't that astonishing? Jesus is basically saying, I don't matter, I don't mind if I work my way down the ladder of success. If everyone leaves now, the mission is still on track. That's the amazing thing. He does not need to sell himself to a crowd. He can watch the crowd go and still achieve God's purposes. If you want to go, and isn't Peter's response fantastic at this point? And Peter, in verse 68, says, Lord, where will we go? To whom will we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and come to know you are the Holy One of God. Did you notice that profound sentence there? We have believed and come to know. See, the order is important. Those who don't trust God's spirit, regardless of how much they mention it, who set up a church on the basis of selling Jesus through celebrity, manipulating narcissism, reinforcing sin, that sort of church, in inverted commas, believes you need to know before you believe. But if God is alive and doing his stuff in this history, if he can get into the snow dome, if he can manifest himself through his spirit, and there is not a, a wall or a society or a political decision that can cut out the spirit of Jesus Christ in this world, and he can do it, if he can do that, then it's believing that produces knowing, not knowing that produces believing. I would not waste my time and the frustration of trying to hold a church together as a pastor or a theologian, if that was not true. Our, I just hear so many Christians talking about bemoaning the fact that the young people are leaving the church. And no many articles have you read on that. But Jesus didn't panic. Jesus didn't fluster. He didn't run after the crowd. Oh, look, we'll... We'll, we'll do muffins. <laughs> we'll have better coffee. Come back. No. You see, the very fact that he welcomed the crowd going is because he knew that the crowd was not the church. The church was those in whom God worked. Loss of a crowd is not the loss of one soul that God knows. The Spirit makes faith where Christ is preached. If we work on cool, all you'll get is a crowd and you'll lose your soul. Carnality is catching. But preach the word and you will bring down 
infinite, eternal love into history. And what you will have will last for eternity. I must leave you there. I have a, a few stories I could tell, but time is of the end. Let's pray. Our Lord and our God, we thank you for this, this moment to see that Jesus again, to get a glimpse of you. We thank you, our Father God, that the way you worked was entirely in harmony with the Father's will. We thank you for your calm confidence that the power of the gospel would win the day and save all those that you've known since eternity. We thank you, Lord, that when we trusted you, we're popped in that basket that's heading to heaven. Help us to trust the mundane and unassuming ways of Jesus. For the sake of your church, for the sake of the goodness that can happen to people when they know you, but for the sake of the glory of Jesus Christ. For this we pray in your name. Amen.